Good morning. Anybody uh, hit by the daylight saving struggle bus this morning? I, I woke up at 6.30. I woke up again at 7.30 with my phone on my chest. I guess I turned my alarm off at 6.30 and went back to sleep. So I uh, struggled a little bit this morning. It uh, looks like there's some people missing this morning. I'll be coming in in about an hour. I'll be wrapping up. And like, uh, yeah, so uh, kids, you guys are dismissed. Uh, you can go to class. I'm overwhelmed with the musical talent we have here. I noticed, didn't know that Zach was playing the, uh, the box thingy here. So it's just amazing. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In that passage, this is where Paul, he told Timothy to guard the gospel. He charged them not to let certain persons teach a different gospel. Paul knew that that congregation needed a strong foundation. He knew that any uncontested sin would slowly creep its way through the camp. And Paul's love for Christ, his love for Christ's bride, he just could not allow that to happen. So he told Timothy to bring a charge against anyone teaching a different doctrine. And then I love what happens next here, this transition. In the very next section, verses 12 through 17, Paul does what I think we should all do after noticing the sin in others. So what, what does he do? What, what does Paul do after he addresses the sin in others? He, he probably sends out a tweet about it, right? That's what he does, destroying their character. Or maybe he calls up the other apostles, hey, you guys will never believe what's happening here in Ephesus. But that's not what Paul does. After he acknowledges the, the mockery that's being made in the church at Ephesus, he pauses, and then he becomes introspective. He becomes introspective. Now, being introspective doesn't mean that he stops pointing the finger at what's going on in Ephesus. I mean, even at the end of chapter 1, he specifically calls out two men by name. But he first takes time to look in the mirror and remember what the grace of God has done in his own life. And that is what we see in these six verses this morning. We see a man who has a great understanding of who he is, understanding of who God is. And when you have a good grasp on those two things, then we see that this will lead um, Paul to just stop and worship. So let's read our passage this morning. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. 
To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, your mercy, your kindness towards us, that we were uh, far from you, and you came to this world to rescue sinners. For may, may this truth, may this truth lead us to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Probably, unless you've been under a rock the past month or so, you've probably have heard or seen um, somewhere in the news, there's been a lot of attention on what's happening in Wilmore, Kentucky. The Asbury Revival has been everywhere. It's all over the news. Christians, non-Christians are all talking about it. It seems like most people fall into two camps when, when I'm just in interaction with people. I'm, you're, you're either blown away and excited to see how God is still moving in the hearts of young people, or you're a little bit skeptical of the whole thing. That's kind of where I've seen And maybe there's gradations of those two, but you fall into those two camps. Historically, these movements of God, these revivals or awakenings, it, Typically, they're sparked by someone having a genuine understanding of their brokenness and need for God. This brokenness then leads to a public confession, which then leads to praise, and they experience God's mercy um, fall upon them. Um, and that's what we see in this passage. We, we, we see Paul like seeing his sin, uh, being aware of it, um, acknowledging who God is, his greatness, that only he can rescue and then we see him just pause. He stops in the middle of this chapter and just gives this beautiful doxology. He just stops and praises. Uh, and as I say that, I also want to say, like, just I want to give us a little bit of a warning here. Don't, don't make this passage into a formula. Uh, this is not a spiritual equation for revival. I know a lot of churches will schedule revival. Have you seen that? Like, this has always fascinated me. That, and I'm not saying this wrong. They, they, the church can do what they want, but I'm just saying, like, it's interesting, like, how do you schedule revival? How do you go about that? Do you first fall on your knees and talk to God? Like, God, is there a certain week of the year that the Holy Spirit is going to fall upon us, that we need to schedule this revival? Uh, and then once maybe God confirms the Holy Spirit's availabilities, you find some usually really loud, very, you know, robust speaker and Good band to go with them, and then, boom, you got revival. So let's be careful when we're talking about scheduling revival. We know that it's a thing that only God can do. And we see how Paul here, he, he understands one's self. He has a right understanding of himself, a right understanding of God. And that usually leads you into this authentic worship of the king of ages, the immortal, the invisible, the only God. In verse 12, Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Notice how Paul says that God has judged me faithful. How, how is Paul faithful? I mean, I, I don't believe Paul was suggesting that he had received this appointment to ministry because God thought so highly of him. It was more that Paul was amazed that a man with his background would ever be entrusted with the gospel at all. I think he was overjoyed at God's demonstration of confidence in him by placing him 
a man who was a threat to Christians in a place of service for God's kingdom. It was Augustine who said, God does not choose a person who is worthy, but by the act of choosing him, he makes him worthy. So Paul knew that he wasn't judged faithful by his own faithfulness. And he says so in the very next verse. Look down at verse 13. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. Did you catch that? Though formerly I was. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, insolent opponent. Past tense. Praise God that we are no longer who we used to be. I used to be that, but now I'm this. I used to be lost, but now I'm found. I used to be dead, but now I'm alive. Paul says that he used to be a blasphemer. Now, most people, when they think of blaspheming, usually we just equate that with taking the Lord's name in vain. This is the OMG or using Jesus Christ as an outburst or even saying GD. A blasphemer is a person who speaks disrespectfully about God in order to damage his reputation. That's what Paul was doing. Paul's blasphemy was much more than just saying the Lord's name in vain. For Paul, it was this intentional opposition to Jesus. He was opposing. He was persecuting. He was murdering Christians. His aim was to destroy the followers of Jesus. I want you to think about the irony in Paul's life here. Instead of preaching the gospel of forgiveness to the nations, he was trying to eradicate the gospel from God's chosen nation. So he spent his first part of his life trying to eradicate the gospel of the Jews. And then after Christ rescues him, he spends the rest of his life preaching the gospel to all the nations. So the second half of verse 13, it may sound like an excuse, but I think Paul was just giving his reason. So there's balance there of excuse reasoning. And an excuse is an attempt to get off the hook. I don't think that's what Paul's doing here. Paul is just simply stating his problem or owning what he had done. At the end of verse 13, Paul says, But I received mercy... Because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul says that he acted ignorantly in unbelief. He did not wake up every morning looking to blaspheme the Lord. That wasn't his goal. I believe Paul went about each day thinking his actions were actually pleasing to God. I think he probably went home after the stoning of Stephen and actually felt good about the whole thing. He probably thought he was fulfilling the Torah, being a good Jew, a keeper of the law. And this is why he says in letters like that he wrote to the, the church at Philippi, he says, As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. This is a lot like how the rich young ruler spoke to Jesus about the commandments when he said, All of these I have kept from my youth. They thought, I've kept all these laws, all these commandments. I'm doing good for God. Yet in the Gospel of John, Jesus warned his followers that the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me, is what Jesus says in John 16. And this is exactly what Paul was doing. He blasphemed the very God that he desired to serve. 
So even though it was unintentional, he still needed, he still needed forgiveness because when it's all said and done, he still committed blasphemy. So Paul pauses. He confesses that he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. And then in verse 15, he gives one of the clearest depictions of the gospel found in the New Testament. Verse 15, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And there's so much uh, that we could just stop and unpack here. First, it's important for us to understand that Jesus did not come into being or existence when he came into the world. Sometimes that confuses people, especially new believers. Jesus already existed as the second person of the Trinity, the pre-existent eternal Son of God who was there with the Father, with the Spirit, before the foundation of the world. He committed the ultimate act of humility by taking on flesh. Before the incarnation, Christ was not physical. He had no flesh. We see this in Philippians chapter 2. teaches us that he took on flesh. He became one of us in order to become one with us. So Jesus came into the world. But why did he come into the world? Did he just want to experience the creation that he had created? Why did he come? Jesus Christ came to live the life that we could not live to die the death that you and I deserved, to rise to victory over the enemies we could not conquer, sin and death. I don't think there's a greater miracle in all of human history. And yet Paul tells us it's trustworthy and true. He's saying these are not like the myths uh, that you see in Ephesus. These maybe aren't the same things that that you would hear from the false teachers from verse 4. He says, remember, we're in, we're in Ephesus, the land of Greek mythology. Remember in, in Acts, they, were worship, they, um, they worshiped at the temple of Artemis. And Paul says, this is not some fairy tale that Jesus came and died for your sin. What I'm telling you is it's trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. What I'm telling you will change your life. So what is this truth? That Christ Jesus came into the world to make you happy, right? To take away all your troubles, to take away all your suffering. That's why Christ came into the world, right? That's not what Paul says here. Paul says that Christ Jesus came into the world, why? To save Sinners. Sinners. Ah, it's one of those words these days. We don't like to say it. A lot of churches have quit saying it. It's offensive. It's, it's a trigger word. Uh, might trigger people if you talk about sin. Might uh, stir up some shame in their lives. Calling someone a sinner may damage someone's self-esteem. So we just... Let's not talk about sin today. Let's talk about just living your life better, how to live happier and 
at peace with one another. Yet the Apostle Paul says, out of all of the sinners, he says, I, I am the foremost. He says it twice in these two verses. God chose to take the number one persecutor of the church, a, a man who was murdering Christians. God chose to, make, to take him and make him the number one missionary in the church in order to show his patience. Ah, I love this, and this is why like, I think we need to preach about sin in the church, because I think this is, should lead you to worship and praise and, and, and uh, a high view of God. He, he says that, that, that no matter what you've done, no matter what your past is, these words are trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There's a survey done several years ago around 2016 um, by Ligonier Ministries. If you're not familiar with that ministry, I just encourage you to, to search it out this week. There's a lot of good resources from Ligonier Ministries. Um, in this survey, one of, the, one of the shocking results found in this survey was that this was, this was what, six years ago, so I, I think it's probably increased by, then, by now. 74% in 2016, 74% of Americans did not grasp the true nature and consequences of sin. Um, that, that believe that sin was like, um, you start out kind of moral, or, or, or I should say neutral. You don't start out with sin, and, and, and there's just not a good understanding of what the Bible would call sin. And so one of the pastors conducting the survey made this observation. He says, we cannot have a clear understanding of Christ and the gospel if we do not grasp our true need as sinners and the atrociousness of our sin before a holy God. So the implication of the truth is this, that sin is every man's greatest problem. It's not, it's not the government. It's not inflation. It's not singleness. It's not marriage. It's not poverty. Man's greatest problem is sin. And Paul says this deserves full acceptance. You should embrace this truth. Paul says, you, Christian, need to accept this truth. And so when Paul uses this type of language, like um, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, he, he uses that several times in the pastoral epistles. And when he says it, he means that this is a settled doctrine. That This is not something that's secondary or tertiary. This is black and white. Christians should not be debating over this topic. The reason this is man's greatest problem is because it's universal, because it's personal. This is not a cultural issue. It's man's greatest problem because the radical remedy that Paul testifies to, it's a remedy that comes from outside of us. It's not of your own doing. The remedy for man's sin was and is the gospel. God himself in Christ Humbling himself, being humiliated, living a perfect life, dying a sinner's death, rising from the dead, returning to heaven to continue mediating and advocating for sinners. This is what's going on here. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, we see the Apostle Paul summing up this argument that man's problem with sin is both universal and personal. Sin has permeated all throughout the world, and it's deserving of God's severe uh, judgment, punishment. So listen to what he says in 
Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better, any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks uh, for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now, now usually when, when I read over a passage like this, there, there's, there's this tendency of mine to think that this is describing other people. You kind of do that. Maybe you're reading about the Israelites in the Old Testament, and you're like, man, these guys are idiots. And then, and then like, at some point, the Holy Spirit's like, you, you are that guy. Uh, and so... The Apostle Paul says that this is every man's mess apart from Christ before a perfectly holy, righteous God. It is serious. Our sin is obscene. It's gross. To make matters worse, we can't do anything about it. And this is where the church and the world would part ways. The, the world does not believe, one, that there is a sin problem. Sin isn't the problem. So how does the world explain all the chaos that we see every day? It's not, it's not a sin problem. Um, but, but, you know, even when you, can any of you just still watch or read the news? Like, it's just so hard to do. And set aside all the agendas that every media outlet pushes. But just seeing the news, it's just sickening. I mean, you could read daily about some teacher, some pastor, some leader who has sexually abused a minor. There's cold murders happening every day in our streets. Pimps, drug lords, gangs, human trafficking, the sexualization of kids happening in our country just makes me want to weep for the next generation. And the only solution the world has to offer is just to assign some psychological disorder or sum it up to some terrible environment that they grew up in or the outcomes of systemic racism, just fill in the blank. Like, there's something, like, but we never talk about sin. It's always something out there. And those are all tension things. Those are all things. Yes, there are psychological disorders. There are you know, terrible environments that people grow in. There is still racism. And as the world is trying to make this a better place to live, the world continues to miss the mark. Because if they find the mark, then that would mean that they would need to adjust some things in their lives. And so we don't want to talk about sin because then it gets very personal. Now, for those of you who really know me well, you know that I like magic. And I'm not talking like Harry Potter magic. I'm talking about like real magic. Like <laughs> tricks and mentalism and illusions. One of the greatest Tactics, uh, an illusionist will use is something called misdirection. You, you know what misdirection is. It's 
you know, like I have this coin here in my hand and, you know, I bring it over here. And so as, as I'm looking over here and I make this big motion over here, I'm forcing you to look over here and you're missing what's really happening. Right, I've palmed the coin over here. And so Satan is an expert at misdirection. And I think that's what's going on. Like, we're like, look over here at politics. Look, look over here at the environment. And, and, we're, and we're missing the entire time. Satan is just palming the coin. He's hoping you don't see the obvious. We're at the point in our culture where where it calls evil good and good evil. I don't know how many of you saw the um, the interview. I don't know if you call it an interview. Jane Fonda was on The View this week. It's kind of all them. She talked about, you know, people were against the pro-life, the, those, those politicians who are pro-life should be murdered, and they were like, it's, you know, oh, she's joking, she's joking, she didn't really mean it, and she kind of didn't say anything whether she was joking or not. Uh, the fact that we're, the fact that even that, like, that it would be okay to murder, you know, it's like, if we can't murder babies, and we will murder the people promoting pro-life. Like, what, where are we right now? The, the fact that our country is debating whether or not a drag show is inappropriate for children shows you just how far off we are. Bestiality is here, folks. Maps is here. Do you know maps? Minor attracted person. Someone attracted to a minor will use the same logic that's been using, that people have been using for decades. This is who I am. How can you tell me who I can and cannot love? And, and so... We're at this impasse right now. The world says the problem is out there. And the solution is found where? It's found inside us. But the Bible says the exact opposite. The Bible claims that the world's problems are not out there, but in here. Man's problem is sin. And the solution is not found in here, but it's found out there. In history, what Christ has done. Isn't that fascinating and frightening at the same time? That we're just kind of doing this dance. But twice, Paul calls himself the foremost of all sinners. In Ephesians, Paul uses similar descriptive language. He says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints... This grace was given to me to, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And again in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. My concern if Paul was here and if he was maybe in your D group, you're hanging out with Paul and Paul starts speaking this way, my, my concern is that many of you would want to quickly correct Paul's self-image and restore his self-esteem. Paul, don't, don't say that about you. You're, you're good. It's not like you've ever killed. Uh, well, uh, you haven't done that in a long time. You're a good man. <laughs> John Stott, the great Brit, he writes this. He says, Paul, with the Holy Spirit's help, was so vividly aware of his own sins that he could not conceive that anyone could be worse. 
It is the language of every sinner whose conscience has been awakened and disturbed by the Holy Spirit. Another theologian describes the flesh as a haunted house within our hearts. And like trick birthday candles that you blow out while making a wish only to have them burst back into flames. Those candles are so cruel, aren't they? As, you know, for like, I remember giving them to my dad when I remember he was maybe 40 and it was pretty funny watching him do it. But then like you do it to like a little kid and it's not funny. Like they start crying and can't blow out the candle. And you think you've extinguished some sin in your life, and about the time you start to celebrate and think that your wishes are coming true, that flame ignites yet again. Paul says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. I'm so thankful for his perfect patience. I think this is what leads Paul to just, to doxology. I mean, he, Paul knew that, that if prior to that road to the, uh, um, when, when, when Christ rescues him, uh, it would have been, Paul's on a road, road to hell. Uh, God could have extinguished my flame before July 12, 1998, and I would have spent eternity in hell. But Jesus Christ displayed his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I'm not, I'm not sure if you've ever noticed this in, in, in Paul's epistles, but when he has nothing left to say, like when, he like, when, he's, when he's overwhelmed with God and sin, he, he often just erupts into this doxology. And this is what he does um, here in, in 1 Timothy. The, these truths are so glorious, so magnificent, that Paul comes to an end of himself and he worships. And this is how I open this morning, that when you have a right understanding of yourself, the foremost of all sinners, when you stop blaming the world for your problems, and you realize that the greatest problem is, is you, and that a perfect God would save even you, then if that truth doesn't lead you to praise and adoration, then I don't think that you really believe one of those first two things. Paul realizes he is the foremost of all sinners. He understands that the solution for his sin was a perfect God coming to earth, dying for his sin, rising from the dead, reigning in heaven as his mediator. And so the very next thing he does is he prays. Look down at verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now the location of the, this doxology, it's interesting. We aren't at the end of this letter. We're not even at the end of the chapter. Paul does something similar in Romans um, chapter 11, verse 33. In the middle of his argument, he just breaks out in praise. Romans 11, 33 says this. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has, the, who, who has known the mind of the Lord or 
has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Have you ever in your life been so overwhelmed with God's goodness and his mercy that, that it just you just have to stop because you're just so overwhelmed and it just leads you to praise? In verse 17, Paul says that God is the king of, of all ages, now and forevermore. He, he's immortal. He never grows tired or weary. So when you're up late at night, worried, anxious about tomorrow, he's up with you. He never changes. Death and decay cannot and will not ever touch him. Because he's king, he's royalty, he is forevermore, meaning he is eternal. We also see that God's glory is invisible. It's incomparable. He is invisible, the only God. God is beyond the limits of what we can see or even imagine. And no one compares with him. He is the only God. Now think about the audience he's speaking to in Ephesus. They had many gods. Their greatest god, at least the god of that city, was Artemis. And here God, uh, Paul is saying, there is only one God. And he will receive honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Artemis is dead, but our God reigns. So when you see yourself, foremost of sinners, against a holy and righteous God, then there is only room for doxology. And so Paul breaks out into praise. Uh, this makes me think of the parable of the unforgiving servant from Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, a, a man had a debt that he couldn't pay. And when you do the math, it, it, it comes up to be several billions of dollars. Uh, and the master, you know, the, the servant begs, please forgive me of this debt. The master releases him from this debt. I mean, if this happened to you, how would you feel? Maybe not a good question because I think for us, Billions of dollars is so just such a crazy large number. We don't quite understand billions, right? Let's be real. But let's say, let's just say that um, you, the lender of your greatest debt calls you tomorrow. So it could be, could be a car. It, it could be maybe a credit card. Could be a house, college. But whatever that thing is, so get that in your head. It could be some bill you owe. And that company, that institution calls you and says, hey, we, we've been talking it over. And you know, we just want to pick one person just to forgive their debt. And we've decided we want to forgive your loan. What level of emotions would you have? See some, see some excitement on some faces. Some of you, like, so you're still kind of just... I don't know if you're still daylight savings problems right now. I'm not sure. But for me, I, I think it honestly depends on which debt they pay off. Right? Now, if they forgave my truck loan, be pretty, pretty excited. I would, I would be, uh, I'd probably take my family. We'd go to Texas Roadhouse to celebrate. I'd leave a really big tip. 
and I would tell the server what the lender had done. You'd never believe what happened to us. But if Rocket Mortgage called and said, hey, we're going to just cancel your mortgage. <laughs> now we're talking. I'm not, I, would, I would start weeping. I would weep. I would be so happy. I would cry. I'm reserving Texas Roadhouse for all of us. I'm just <laughs> calling. Just Our church is coming today. We're, I'm going to charge it. <laughs> huh. See, your level of praise flows out of the level of debt that's been paid off. And I just wonder, I just wonder, let me step on some toes here. If the reason we, we Christians, we don't have this great joy in our lives, while we aren't quick to praise and tell others about what has happened to us, maybe it's because we don't understand the depth of the debt that he has paid off for us. See, shame on me if I would tell the server at Texas Roadhouse, can you believe what this lender has done for me? That, he, that they called and canceled my, my car, uh, my, my, my truck payment. It's no more loan. Yet, I wouldn't tell that same server what Christ has done to cancel my debt. You know what I mean? If you think, I'm, I'm not that bad. I just have a little bit of sin. If you just have a little bit of sin, then you're probably just going to give a little bit of praise. But if you think, God, I am the foremost of all sinners. I'm the chief of all sinners. Then your praise will be like, God, you are good. You are awesome. You're amazing. I just cannot get enough of you. I can't put your word down. I'm overwhelmed. I can't stop telling people about what you've done for me in my life. See, worship is a result of your heart and your mind awakening to the biblical truth that though our sin was great and is great, that God's provision in Christ is far greater. And that truth should move us to worship. So how do you see yourself this morning? Uh, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as that person on that side of the room or those who are in the back. Or do you see yourself as, oh, God, I am the, I'm the foremost of all sinners. How in the world could you rescue me? See, how you see yourself and how you see the God who rescues you will greatly impact how you worship. I love the story of William Carey. Now, William Carey was a missionary to India in the 18th, 19th century. He's known as the father of modern missions. If you were to go to uh, the grave of William Carey today, what do you think you'd find on this tombstone? Tombstones are kind of cool because it's an opportunity to, to kind of reminisce, um, see what legacy this person has left the next generation. I mean, he's the father of modern missions. Brought, you know, 
certain parts of India, he brought the gospel to them. There's still today, people would, in India would praise the name of, praise God for the name of William Carey. So you think someone like that, you might find some moving tribute to his great sacrifice, successes in bringing the gospel to India. But that's not <laughs> what is inscribed in William Carey's tombstone. It simply reads, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray as the band comes back up to lead us in singing to this great, merciful, immortal, invisible God. God, only you can save. There's nothing inside us that can change our state with you. We need your help. And so, Lord, you saw that need and you came. You took on flesh, lived a perfect life. You died in our place. But death didn't stop you. You defeated death. You rise from the grave where you reign right now in heaven, ruling over all world. Lord Jesus, I pray that Today we would honor you that we would see ourselves like Paul, the foremost of all sinners. That you would rescue us. And that the fact that you would rescue us, the chief of all sinners, that that would lead us just right now just to praise. So may, may we just express that right now through song. May the words that we sing, may they be true in our lives. Lord, may we honor you this morning. We pray this in your name.